Our Father, we are here now to hear from you through your word and we pray that your spirit would help us to do just that. Give us attentive hearts this morning. Father, block out all the distractions that would seek to interfere. Enable us to hear directly from you through your word that we might grow in the likeness of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Beloved, it was a very cold and overcast uh, winter day in the year 1944 when the very lightly defended American line on the edge of the Ardennes Forest in Belgium erupted under a 90-minute German artillery barrage. Unbeknownst to the Allied commanders at that time, Hitler had planned a surprise attack. And the object of that attack was to capture the deep water port at Antwerp and in the process drive a wedge between the British and American armies in northern Europe. Hitler believed if successful in this counteroffensive that he could knock the British and Americans out of the war that they would sue for peace and that it would enable him to divert all the remaining resources of the German war machine to face the impending invasion of the Soviet armies from the east. This was a desperate last-ditch attempt at salvaging World War II. Germany had been in constant retreat since D-Day six months earlier and in the process, the Allied commanders had underestimated both the strength and the resilience of the German war machine. In that surprise blitzkrieg attack, the Germans overwhelmed the weakly defended American front, catching them completely off guard. Over a period of a couple days, they opened up a 50-mile deep bulge into the American lines from which this battle gained its name. The Germans might well actually have accomplished their purposes if it had not been for the courage and tenacity of a handful, really, of American soldiers in places like Bastogne, who held out against incredible odds. Bastogne was rescued by the amazing ability of General George Patton to turn his third army 90 degrees and attack north to rescue Bastogne in a period of just 48 hours. The Battle of the Bulge was the costliest action for the U.S. Army in all of World War II. 100,000 casualties. It was also exceedingly costly for the German army. They lost a lot of men and equipment in the process. The end of the war in Europe followed in just a matter of a few months. In a way, the Battle of the Bulge illustrates the danger faced by Christians when it comes to spiritual warfare. Our enemy has been beaten at the cross, and our Father has provided us with all the resources we need to live out our new life in Christ. Yet, we must not assume that a devastating counterattack is impossible. The final outcome is secure. But the devil and his angels can still inflict very serious casualties upon the unprepared among us. The spiritual war is real, and it's dangerous. Open your Bibles, if you're not already there, to the sixth chapter of Ephesians as we return again for the fourth and final time to verses 10 through 20, the last big teaching section of this letter. Ephesians chapter 6 and beginning in verse 10, follow along as I read. Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul gives us here a three-part strategy in these verses for standing firm in the Christian faith. A three-part strategy. In verses 10 to 13, he instructs us to stand firm by perceiving our enemy. In verses 14 to 17, to stand firm by putting on our armor. And now here in verses 18 through 20, the third part of that strategy, to stand firm by persevering in prayer. By persevering in prayer. Beloved, the final way that as believers we stand firm against the onslaught of the devil and his minions is by praying. It is by praying. Praying is not here an additional piece of armor. There are six items or pieces of armor that are listed for us in verses 14 to 17, and now in beginning here in verse 18, the topic of prayer being introduced, but it's, but it's not being introduced as another piece of armor. It's not the seventh piece of armor. Prayer is a foundational and continuous activity that is essential for the believer because we are involved in a spiritual war. Because we're involved in a spiritual war. And as Paul lays this out for us, it's instructive, I think, to to note that this section on prayer, verses 18 through 20, is, is given a far greater prominence than any of the other individual pieces of armor. As we looked at that last time, we said they're all important and you don't get to just pick and choose which ones to put on. They they all need to be put on if we're to stand firm. But they need to be put on with prayer. Prayer undergirds all of this. And And the reason for this is because our enemy is not flesh and blood. We don't We are not opposed by a flesh and blood enemy. We are opposed by a very powerful spiritual enemy. And so the battle is conducted in that realm, and and prayer is what enables us to stand firm. We need to be strengthened by by the Lord's might. We need to put on the armor of God, and we need to pray. We need to pray. In fact, prayer is the, the means by which we depend upon the Lord, by which we are strengthened by his power. We could say that, in effect, we stand by kneeling. We stand by kneeling. Now, here in these verses, 18 through 20, Paul um, uses three words, or or at least I'm going to use three words, to, to describe his teaching about prayer. Okay, It's a simple outline this morning, just a, a three-word outline that will describe Paul's teaching here on prayer in regard to spiritual war. 
And the first of those words is constant. Okay, the first of those words is constant. Notice in verse 18, with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit. In other words, prayer is not an incidental activity. It's a foundational activity. It's a foundational activity. And Paul understood that reality, and and so he practiced a life of prayer, and he he taught and exhorted the believers to a life of prayer. Over in the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, his letter to the church there, he says to them that he he thanked God always concerning them, 1 Corinthians 1.4. For the Philippians, Paul was always offering prayer with joy for them, he says, Philippians 1.4. He wrote to the Colossians that he was praying always for you, Colossians 1.3. Paul instructed the Thessalonians with regard to the matter of prayer to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. In light of the ongoing nature of the spiritual warfare here, it it shouldn't surprise us that Paul would close it out here with this admonition to pray. And to pray at all times. Right? The idea being in every opportunity. In every opportunity, pray. Beyond that, these these regular times of prayer that are to characterize the the life of the believer here consists of, Paul says, petitions or or pleadings with God. We need God's aid in this battle. We need God's aid in this battle. And so we need to offer these pleadings. We need to offer these petitions. and, And they are offered in dependence upon the Spirit. We need his guidance, we need his direction, we need his help. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Now what would these petitions look like? How would Paul have us make our pleadings with God the Father? Well, it would be of a both general nature and a specific nature. And we can, we can find illustrations of them here in this letter. And so I think that's instructive for us. If we are to pray at every opportunity, what are we to pray? How are we to pray? What is it to look like? And so Paul gives it to us. You go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1. Paul says, for this reason, I too, verse 15, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And then Paul goes on to articulate his prayer there. And and basically the gist of his prayer is that they might know the greatness of the power of God. Paul prays that they might know the greatness of the power of God. In chapter 3, Beginning in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And then Paul goes on to to articulate his prayer there. And, And his prayer there is a little bit different. His prayer there is that they might be strengthened by God's power. So that they might grasp the dimensions of the love of God for them. So we could say in a general sense what Paul does, what he what he he uh instructs us by illustration of is is He prays that the believers might know the gospel and might come to believe the gospel and understand its implications for them. This is is his pleadings with God the Father for them. Why? Because they are involved in a great spiritual war. We cannot lose sight of the gospel. We need to know it. We need to know it well. We need to understand it and, and we need to apply it to our lives. So at every opportunity, we were to pray along those lines. But Paul also gives us specific prayer requests or pleadings in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. And we'll get to that here in a little bit later. But there we have a specific 
illustration or request of the kind of pleadings that Paul would have. So the first way we can characterize the, 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 the prayer that Paul is exhorting the believers to is that it is to be constant. It is to be constant. At every opportunity, we are to pray. Second, it is to be committed it is to be committed prayer. So it's to be constant prayer, and it's to be committed prayer. Verse 18, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. So how do we develop the, the kind of constancy in prayer that, that Paul calls for here, Right? to pray at all times or to pray with every opportunity. And the only way we can develop that kind of constancy is to, is to develop a life that is characterized by expectancy and persistence. Expectancy and persistence. This is what brings about a, a constant prayer life. The Greek word translated here as alert, be on the alert, it means to, to watch, to lose sleep, to, to, you know, to be alert, that kind of an idea. So Paul says here, right, to, to be on the alert, to be watchful, to, to be sleepless even. And then he uses a, this um, a, a very rare Greek word here that's translated perseverance. And um, this, this rare word, I think, can be characterized by, pers by persistence as well. So perseverance or persistence. And it's an interesting word because it, it is used to speak of the enthusiasm and zeal that is normally associated with the committed practice of a craft or a trade. Right? So if you want to master the trade, you want to master your craft, you have to work at it. it you, don't, you don't become proficient in it by dabbling. And even in the workforce, we, we know that, right? I mean, you, you've got to work out. Whatever the, whatever the calling, whatever the vocation the, the Lord has put upon you, you've got to work at this thing. You've got to work at it. And, and there are times that it causes sleeplessness, whatever, whatever it is you're after. You're a stay-at-home mom. There that is, a, that is a noble vocation, and, and it brings its sleepless nights. Or you, or you may be uh, involved in some sort of a, a vocation in which you're designing and building and solving problems and so forth. And, and if you've done this for any length of time, you know that there are certain times you go to bed with a problem on your mind, and like you wake up in the middle of the night and bang. You know, I used to keep a little pad of paper near my bed and you know, scribble down ideas. I mean, it comes to you sometimes in the, in the middle of those sleepless nights. But you have to work at it. You have to persist with it. And so I think that's what Paul's communicating here is, that, is the kind of commitment to prayer in the, in the realm of the spiritual warfare has to be a prayer that brings about an alertness, a watchfulness, a, even a sleeplessness. And it, and it brings about with it a, the, the willingness to, to, um, to work at this thing hard. Hence the word committed, right? It is to be committed. We are to be committed to this, to be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. Now, let's just acknowledge this right up front, that every Christian that I've ever met, and likely any Christian you've ever met, has struggled with constancy and commitment to prayer. Can we agree to that? There's a struggle, isn't there? There's a struggle to be constant in prayer. There's a struggle to be committed to prayer. And it should be obvious that this is a, a, a normal struggle. Now, you know, I hesitate in the use of the word normal because I, by saying normal, I'm not saying that it's okay to, you know, fall down here. It's, it's never okay. But it is a common experience. I mean, just think with me on this. If it wasn't a common experience, Paul wouldn't address it here. Right? I mean, these people are struggling with constancy in their prayer life. They're, they're, they're struggling with being committed to prayer. So Paul's instructing them in these things. So, if you're this morning, you're here, and you're, 
You're saying, yeah, I understand it. That's that, yeah, I agree. That's what it says. But woof. You know, if someone said to me, are, you know, are you constant in your prayer life? Do you pray at every opportunity? Mm. You know, are you committed to prayer? Well, yeah, I'm intellectually committed to prayer. But are you practically committed to prayer? Do you, do you work at it? Do you wake up at night with it? I think we'd all say, no, I, I, I fall short. I fall short. And I, and I think the, the reason we struggle with this, I think the reason we, we, we fall short in this is because we, we're, we're failed to sense our inadequacy with regard to our spiritual enemies. I, I think we are like that thinly held American front in December of 1944 in Belgium. They had the Ardennes forest between them and the Germans, a nearly impenetrable forest or so they thought. It's Christmas time. It had been a long, hard slog, and, and so they, they were relaxing. They were relenting a little. They were, they were thinly defended. They, they, were, they were troops pulled back from the front so that they could rest up. There wasn't a sense of urgency to it all. And, and I think that's true for us with regard to prayer. Is, is there's, and, and I'll just say it, that there's the, the sin of complacency that creeps into our lives. We get complacent. We don't, we don't recognize the acuteness of the battle or the necessity of prayer. So what do we do about that? How, how do we change that? Well, here's one way, I think, one, one suggestion to, to approach the battle with a, with a greater sense of constancy, a, a greater sense of commitment, and here it is. Pray immediately when, when you hear of the need. How many times has someone come to you and either asked you to pray for them or they've told you something that you, that you know you need to pray for them, and, and you'll even say, I, I will pray for you, and then... Life happens, right? You forget. You forget. Again, a, a common experience. And I, and I think one of the ways to battle with that is to, is to begin to make it a practice to pray immediately. So when, when someone comes to you and, and they say to you, you know, I'm struggling with this or that or whatever, you know, or, or you know, the devil, he's after me is to just say, can I pray with you right now? Just put your arm around them, draw them off to the side, and, and pray for them. And begin to pray for them. Rather than tell them, you know, thank you, I'll pray for you, or, or whatever, and then forget. So constant. Okay, that's, that's Paul's teaching here on prayer. Constant. Committed. Committed. Third. Third, Paul's teaching here on prayer is corporate. Is corporate. Verse 19. Or the end of verse 18. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. Notice, for all the saints. Do you see it? For all the saints. And then the beginning of verse 19. And pray on my behalf. So it's corporate prayer. And I think it's instructive here to, to note that Paul's emphasis here upon the importance of prayer in the, in the standing firm, in the, in the face of the schemes of the devil, is not upon individual prayer for ourselves. Paul doesn't say that your enemy, right, is, is seeking to destroy you, so pray for yourself. Now, it's legitimate to pray for yourself. We should pray for ourselves. I hope you pray that you would stand firm. And then whatever particular scheme of the devil that is, that is you know, pushing down on you in the, in the time that you pray. But, but I think it's instructive for us to, to note that, that the idea here is that the body prays. Right? Pray for all the saints, he says. And pray on my behalf. So there's a, there's a corporate sense and then there's the specific sense. For, for one individual that you know is struggling. We need to pray personally, but we need to pray corporately. 
Paul is instructing here these believers and by application you and I that we need to pray for each other, that we would stand firm. I need your prayers that I would stand firm. You need my prayers that you would stand firm in whatever circumstance you find yourself right now. And we need to pray for each other. Listen, it's a consequence of our, of our faith union with Jesus Christ, right? We, we have become children of the Father, sons of the living God. That's what Paul instructs over in chapter 1. And at the same time, in chapter 2, we have been placed into a, a corporate solidarity called the body of Christ, made up of Jew and Gentile. The local manifestation of the body of Christ is that local fellowship. This, this unity that we have together here obligates us to pray for one another. We are obligated to pray. We are, we are like soldiers on the battle line. We are linked together in mutual support. In other words, we stand and we fall together. We stand and we fall together here. Now, the hows and the wheres of, of this corporate prayer, it, it can be as varied as the, of the numerous meetings of the believers throughout the week. Paul is not prescribing anything in particular. Okay? He's not describing a, a particular corporate prayer meeting. See, you know, here is Sunday night prayer meeting in the Bible. Yes, no. That's one application. What he is prescribing here is the necessity and the obligation of corporate prayer. But he's leaving the hows and the whys of it and the wheres and the whens open. When the body gathers and any portion of the body gathers, prayer needs to be part of it. That's what he would say. So it could be as simple as this. It could be as simple as you and another believer who are getting together to read the scriptures or, or, you know, or to mutually encourage one another in the Christian faith to take the time to pray together. To take the time to pray. And to pray specifically in this context. And we're good about praying for sickness and, and those kinds of things. And that's all appropriate and so forth. But, but Paul would make sure that we would take the time to recognize we need to pray that for, the, for the stand firm to resist the schemes of the, of the devil. So when you're together with another believer in, in that kind of one-to-one -one time, it's appropriate to pray for each other that you would stand firm, that you would stand firm. Or maybe it's a small group of believers that are meeting together and, you know, in our context here, uh, the various missionary commitments are... are um, been, been sort of delegated out to the various small group ministries and you know who you are and, and so forth. And, and so it would be very appropriate in that context to, to just think about it. This, this person who's overseas, right? They are, they are assaulting the stronghold of Satan. And they need us to, to uphold them in prayer because, listen, Satan doesn't give up ground easily. So they're in, right in the front of the battle of spiritual warfare. All kinds of schemes of the devil. So we need to pray. We need to pray for them. We need to pray as a, as a group of people for various individuals within the congregation that we know of that are struggling. I mean, their, their struggle may be physical, and it's appropriate to pray for that, that the Lord might in his mercy and grace bring healing to their bodies. But listen, in the moment of the, of the physical struggle, the opportunity for the evil one to come in and to bring great discouragement to them and to, and to you know, uh, really cause their faith to become uncertain even is great. So we need to pray to uplift them. Adversity and despair become fertile ground for the enemy to attack. Now, looking back at the text here, 
Notice that, that Paul goes from this statement about we need to pray you know, corporately for everybody to down to an individual prayer request. He wants them to pray, verses 19 and 20, for his specific need. His specific need. So we don't, we don't have to you know, come up with a hypothetical anymore. We've, we've got a specific prayer request here, which I think we can make application from. Paul is asking the Ephesian believers to pray specifically for him, verse 19 and 20, and pray on my behalf. And he's asking them to pray specifically for him in light of his present circumstances, which are what? Well, he is a Roman prisoner with a pending trial before Caesar. You remember that? Why are you going back to Jerusalem to bring alms to his people? He's arrested. The, the, there's a plot of the Jews to murder him. He appeals to Caesar, right? And so to Caesar you will go. And so the book of Acts closes. He's in his own rented quarters. He's there for two years. He is waiting for the appeal. And there is no guarantee of how this is going to come out. By the way, the Caesar at this time is Nero. Nero the nut job who later took great delight in lighting his gardens with Christians dipped in pitch. This is the man and, and all of his entourage that Paul is going to have to stand before. And so he's asking for prayer, specifically that in the face of the, of, of the schemes of the devil here, that they would pray for him in, in some very specific ways. He makes three requests of them. He makes three specific requests of them in light of his pending situation. The first he prays for is clarity. He prays for clarity. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. Okay? He's praying for clarity. He's asking them to pray for him that God would enable him when he is called upon to speak, that God would enable him to, to choose the right words, to be able to communicate clearly the message. Anyone who has ever stood to speak, particularly in the context of the Christian gospel, understands the need to pray for clarity. And that's what Paul's asking for here. Pray that utterance may be given to me. Do you see that? That utterance may be given to me. In other words, that the Spirit would work here to, to help me when I open my mouth. Paul is acutely aware here that, that speaking forth the gospel is not like relating the, the outcome of yesterday's sporting event. This is a far more serious matter. When we open the mouth for Christ, we, we engage in an intense spiritual battle. Every time, every time the gospel is spoken, there is an intense spiritual battle that occurs. Over in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, right, that the, that the devil snatches away the word. He binds the minds of the unbelieving. And so we are engaged in the battle here. And so Paul wants to, God to enable him to think clearly and speak clearly when called upon. He's going to be brought before the magistrates, the, the, the highest authority on earth to speak. And he needs clarity, and he knows he needs clarity. Second, his second request here is, is for candor, that God would grant him candor. Not just clarity, the ability to think clearly and speak clearly, but candor. Candor. Pray, verse 19, on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now, in the, in the ancient world, an ambassador was a, was a high and noble position, a position of great honor. And they would be treated as such. Because they went and they spoke on, on behalf of the king, right? 
So the ambassador communicates the words of the king. And Paul understood that's who he was. He was an ambassador for King Jesus. For King Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 5.20, he uses that exact kind of terminology. I am an ambassador for Christ. But here's his present situation. Look how he, he defines himself here or categorizes himself. I'm an ambassador in chains. In other words, my, my worldly position here is, is not honor but shame. Shame from the, from the world's point of view. Paul, he, he speaks of that even in the letter here back in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. I mean, it doesn't look glorious when the spokesman is bound in chains. And it's from this position, not of high authority and honor and dignity and all the rest of that, but from the position of someone who's, who's got leg irons on, that he is going to stand now and, and make known to the most powerful and influential men in the world the mystery of the gospel. That's what he's being called upon to do. And he, and he says, I, I want to do this with candor. With candor. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to figure out the evil one is probably pulling out all the stops now, right? I mean, you just think with me, just for a second, a little side, okay, kind of a little biblical reasoning here. When you read the Gospels, there is demonic activity all over the place. Seems like, you know, you can't, you can't go very far through any of the four Gospels without encountering intense demonic activity. And then, and in the birth of the church. And then what happens is it, it doesn't really occupy that much space in the, in the epistles of the New Testament. But then when you get to, to Revelation... And the, and the impending return of Christ, what, what do we see again in the pages of, of the book of Revelation? We see all kinds of demonic manifestations again. And it's logical. I mean, when would Satan pull out all the stops? When would he try his hardest, as it were, to, to upset and, and to thwart the plan of God? It would be when Christ came the first time and the second time. The first and the second time. So now when you have the apostle to the Gentiles arraigned before Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to conceive of the fact that Satan is going to be buffeting him and, and, and creating every kind of possible scheme and so forth to, to dissuade him from speaking the mystery of the gospel. And what is the mystery of the gospel? The mystery of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord and, and he has been exalted above all rule and authority, right? He is, the, he is the pinnacle of power in the cosmos. And from that position, he is now reconciling all things back to himself. Humanity to humanity, right? Jew to Gentile. Humanity to humanity. He is reconciling humanity to God, and he is ultimately going to reconcile the creation back to God. This is the, the message, the mystery of the gospel that Paul is being called upon. And he, and he wants to speak, and he wants to speak it with absolute clarity. And he wants to speak it with absolute candor. In other words, he doesn't want to leave anything out. I don't want to leave anything out here. And he's going to speak it to someone who is the highest human authority. Listen, it doesn't go well with people in authority, for you to like confront them face to face and say, you know what? You're nothing. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And, and people in authority in this broken world, listen, they maintain their authority by keeping people at one another's throats. That's how they maintain authority. And, and our message is, is listen, we have come to be reconciled back to God and with each other. We're, we're, we're being brought to a place where we don't hate each other. And we don't have to hate each other.
You're separated from God. You're not a God. You're separated from God and under his judgment. And the only hope you have is Christ. That kind of candor <laughs> requires the Spirit's help. Third, courage. Courage. Clarity, candor, courage. Where Paul says that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's acutely aware of his divine commission. He just says, pray for me that God would give me the courage I need to speak on the day when I stand. Although not an apostle like Paul, many, many Christians through the centuries have been encouraged by the faith of a 22-year-old first-time mom who faced intense spiritual warfare and in the midst of it spoke with clarity, candor, and courage. Let me tell you the story of Perpetua. Perpetua. We have little idea what brought Perpetua to faith in Christ or how long she had been a Christian or how she lived her Christian life. Thanks to her diary and that of another prisoner, we have some idea of her last days. An ordeal that so impressed the famous Augustine that he preached four sermons about her death. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who at the turn of the third century, she died in AD 203, lived with her husband, her son, and her slave Felicitas in Carthage. At this time, North Africa was the center of a vibrant Christian community. It's no surprise then that when Emperor Septimius Severus determined to cripple Christianity, he focused his attention on North Africa. Among the first to be arrested were five new Christians taking classes to prepare for baptism, one of whom was Perpetua. Her father immediately came to her in prison. He was a pagan, and he saw an easy way for Perpetua to save herself. He entreated her simply to deny that she was a Christian. Father, do you see this vase here, she replied. Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, neither can I be called by anything other than what I am, a Christian. In the next days, Perpetua was moved to the better part of the prison and allowed to nurse her young baby. When her hearing approached, her father visited again, this time pleading more passionately, have pity on my gray head, have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life. He threw himself down before her and, and kissed her hands. He said, do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers Think of your mother, think of your aunt, think of your child who will be not able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. Perpetua was touched but remained unshaken. She tried to comfort her father. It will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves but are all in his power. But he walked out of the prison dejected. The day of the hearing arrived. Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor. Perpetua's friends were questioned first, each in turn admitted to being a Christian, and each in turn refused to make a sacrifice. Then the governor turned to question Perpetua. At that moment, her father, carrying Perpetua's son in his arms, burst into the room. He grabbed Perpetua and pleaded, Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. 
The governor, probably wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother who still had a suckling son, added, have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. Perpetual replied simply, I will not. Are you a Christian then? Asked the governor. Yes, I am. Perpetua replied. Her father interrupted again, begging her to sacrifice. But the governor had heard enough, and he ordered his soldiers to beat her father into silence. He then condemned Perpetua and her friends to die in the arena. Perpetua, her friends, and her slave, Felicitas, who had subsequently been arrested, were dressed in belted tunics. When they entered the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor, and in the stands, crowds roared to see blood. They didn't have long to wait. Immediately, a wild heifer charged the group. Perpetua was tossed into the air and onto her back. She sat up, adjusted her ripped tunic, and walked over to help Felicitas. Then a leopard was let loose, and it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood. This was too deliberate for the impatient crowd, which began calling for the death of the Christians. So Perpetua, Felicitas, and friends were lined up, and one by one were slain with a sword. Beloved, we are not in that situation. Thank you, Lord. And I pray we will not find ourselves in that kind of situation. But Paul faced it. And he prayed. And he asked the believers to pray for him. And though we don't face that, there are still many among us who who face the schemes of the devil, the, the, the pressure from a world that is actively seeking to silence the Christian gospel, to to eradicate the mystery of the gospel. This is the world we live in. And those that that are finding themselves right in the front lines of that, they need our prayer. The, the, The pressure to compromise, to speak with less than candor, to to leave parts out, the, the most offensive parts. To to not speak to power is great. It's great. There's tremendous cost involved for them. There's there's the potential of of financial ruin and the loss of employment. There's clearly social ostracization. I'm thinking about public school teachers right now public school teachers, some of which are here among us, right? You know who you are. I'm thinking about college and high school students. I'm thinking about those who have hostile family members. This is a holiday weekend. You may well be with someone in your family who is exceedingly hostile to the gospel. I'm thinking about business executives who could lose their jobs if they fail to toe the party line, right? I'm thinking about public officials. They need our prayers. They need our prayers. So as we close out this sermon, let's take a moment to pray. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm just going to give you a moment. You, you pray, you can pray silently or you can pray audibly to the person sitting next to you. We'll just take a moment and I will close, okay? Let's pray as a congregation.
Our God and Father, we desire to heed your word. We desire to live lives that conform to the image of Christ. And as we have learned in this section, we have that obligation to uphold our, our brothers and sisters who are in the midst of the spiritual fight in our prayers. This morning, Father, there are those here among us who are in the public square in ways that put them on the very front line of the battle. Those that are involved in the school systems, those public officials, those high school and college students, even business executives. And the pressure to either not speak at all or to, to speak with less than full candor is great. For the price they must pay may be great. And so, Father, I, I ask you to strengthen them in the inner man right now. I pray that they would have a grasp on the gospel, that they have been chosen before the foundation of the world by the love of the Father poured forth through his Son. That Jesus has borne in his body on that tree the just penalty of all of their iniquity. And that they have been adopted as sons of the living God. United with Christ, filled by your Spirit and with your Spirit and joint heirs with Christ that they are together with us here in the body as we are all one in Christ. And when one part of the body is suffering, we all suffer. When one part of the body is threatened, we are all threatened. But our eternity is secure in Christ, Father, and I, I pray you would help us to get our hands on that and cling to it. And that it would not be just a, a cold and sterile doctrine, but we would understand the love of Christ for us and how deep and wide it is. Passes all understanding. And so, Lord, may you help them to stand firm. I pray you would grant them clarity when the opportunity comes to speak. They would open their mouths and speak forth the mystery of the gospel of Christ with boldness as they ought to. And Father, that you would help us to come alongside and, and to lift up their arms. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen.